The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to This Is Working. On this show, we talk to leaders who have a significant impact on how we work and how we live. My guest today is the one and only Terry Crews. Terry Crews might be most recognizable as the actor from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Friday After Next, or even those Old Spice commercials. And he is fantastic in those roles. But there's so much more to Terry. He's built a career full of twists and turns, earning respect across multiple industries. Beyond his acting work, he's a former pro athlete, a book illustrator, and a furniture designer. This external success, though, has masked real internal issues. Terry has long wrestled with insecurity and misguided beliefs about what was required from him as a man. He opens up about all of this in his new book, Tough, My Journey to True Power. The memoir covers Terry's difficult childhood. He grew up in poverty, the son of alcoholic and abusive parents. He built up a tough and controlling exterior as a reaction, and it's something he has had to learn how to shed. Now, he says, the real key to success is vulnerability. To kick things off, I asked Terry how he envisioned his life when he was growing up. Here's our conversation. I always knew I wanted to be in entertainment. I mean, from the beginning, when I was a little kid growing up in Flint, Michigan, uh, I used to watch Carol Burnett every Saturday night with my mom. And... It was one of those things where it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life, simply because I learned what being funny was about and and the power that entertainment had to make people happy. Now, another thing, though, is that with my circumstances uh, were not really ideal. My father was very abusive and he would beat my mom and you know, one of those times we would be watching Carol Burnett, a lot of times my mom would be nursing a black eye and these kind of things. And I learned very early the power to make her laugh, even in the midst of her pain. I would do dances for her and I would make her laugh in the middle of some of the darkest moments in our our existence. I mean, in our life, in her life. And I remember saying, this is what I want to do. I want to make people happy. The thing was, I didn't know how that was going to happen. I didn't know where I would be in entertainment. I didn't know how it would be. There were several iterations where I thought I would be an animator. I thought I would be a special effects artist. I thought I would be a filmmaker. But what is really crazy is that I never thought I would be an actor, which is really the insane thing. Um, The fact that I ended up being over 25 years of being a performer in front of the camera was not on my list, but it was the willingness to try stuff that I I normally wouldn't try in order to just be in the field that I loved. I, I look at my life right now and it's all shocking to me all the time. I just, I'm so, so grateful. I'm the most grateful man in Hollywood. If you go back to what you were saying about how you thought you would become an entertainer or how you might end end up entertaining people. It really was this idea uh, about art and art was your true passion. From reading the book, it feels like football was almost like a side hustle that ended up becoming your life. You were sort of forced into this or not forced into this, but it eventually was what led you through um, 
led you into new opportunity. Yeah. Can you just talk about what it was like having something that you were being pushed into that, and you say in, this, in the book, you didn't even really like football. No, so what no, was it like was, being pushed in that direction? Again, um, you know, coming out of Flint, Michigan, you have to understand Flint, Michigan at the time, I was a, a kid during the 70s and 80s. And there was the decline of the auto industry, but also there was the rise of the crack epidemic. So my city was going through major upheaval in a negative light. Like it was it was crazy, man. There were a lot of murders, a lot of crime, a lot of violence. And I, I knew I had to get out, but I didn't see art as a way out simply because the term starving artist is a real term. My whole thing is like, how is painting and drawing going to get me out of here? Because you're usually going to starve when you do this. But what I did see was athletics was always a way out for a lot of athletes in the city. And I said, okay, I'm strong. I'm athletic. I'm going to use football as a way to get out. Now, football was not an end for me. However, I never saw football as my end. It was a means to another life. And if it was going to be my way out of Flint, Michigan, then that's the way it was going to be. I actually walked on to my uh, college football team. I had a $500 art scholarship and then walked on to the football team so I could pay for the rest because my family couldn't afford it. And after a year and a half, I eventually got that scholarship and I decided to just keep going, really just become a football player. But I'll be honest, man, I really didn't like it. You know what I, I found out that I liked? The thing I liked about football was playing outside all day with my friends. That's the, the thing that I loved about football. But when it was time to retire, a lot of people were like, are you going to get into broadcasting or you want to stay in the coaching? And I was like, oh, no, like I, I'm done. Like when I was done with football, I was truly finished. I, there, were, there were years I didn't even watch. Um, and it was one of those things where I, I realized, hey, wait a minute, you know, I didn't really like it. And to be honest, it was actually an obstacle. My wife used to be like, honey, maybe you're getting cut a lot because you're not that good. <laughs> I was like, you know, maybe I should be doing something else. Um, but it, it's wild because it shows just what stick will get you. It got me seven years in the NFL. Terry, a lot of times in the business world, you hear people talking about modeling uh, company cultures based on pro sports. This is a big part of how Netflix says they want to operate. It's a bunch of athletes. You get the best to play. They come together as a team and, and, and they perform incredibly well. But in your book, you make it sound like being in the NFL is not something that is worth emulating. I think you call it a prison with money was what it was like being in that locker room and being on a team. Let me tell you, the light kind of went bright and on for me. When I learned that and this is what, and through my experience, I learned that competition is exactly the opposite of creativity. And let me tell you what I mean. You know, when you're talking about the NFL, a lot of people look up to it as the bar to set for excellence and the whole thing. And there's a big difference between being kicked into success or, or being inspired into success. Hmm. And being in the NFL involved a lot of kicking. And you can be very, very successful when you're competitive against human beings, against other people. And when you're talking about, you mentioned earlier about coming together as a team. Well, people think that the NFL players are coming together as a team, but a lot of times the competition is fierce within each other. I mean, it's really about beating the person that's next to you. There's all these levels of competition that 
And, and I have to tell this because when you look at the results and when you look at former players and you look at the guys that were in there and, and what do they have to say about the NFL, it's quite often not that good. There are only a few players who look back fondly on their careers, but you have way more. The majority of NFL players look back on their careers as, man, I wish I could have been doing anything else than playing in the NFL. And this is the thing. It's just like any businessman, I tend to be a results-oriented person. You have to look at the results. And the, another thing is when you look at who really gets successful in the NFL, a lot of times it's the owners. And a lot of times it's the people who own these teams. Yes, of course, Netflix would say, oh, wow, we want to be like an NFL team. Yeah, because, again, the players kind of get pushed off to the side and the team keeps going. When I look at this level of competition, I choose collaboration. We have to work together. And any business that works together and where people are actually supporting each other and supporting all everyone's success to me, that's the essence of what a real successful company is all about. And have you found that kind of support and working together spirit in Hollywood? Yes, I have. And you know what? It's so wild because it differs by project. You go on certain projects and you have, especially when you're talking about comedic uh, performances like movies and whatever, you may have a comedian who feels like he's in competition with everybody on the movie. And what happens is the movie is not that good because... In comedy, it's all about bouncing off other people. And if you want to be the funniest guy in the room and you want to take all the jokes, usually they fall flat. But when I did Brooklyn Nine-Nine or movies like Blended or White Chicks, we were all working together. The whole goal was to make each other better. And the results are obvious. Like when you see and enjoy something and you go, oh my God, look at these guys. They look like they're having fun. Uh, when that happens, when you get that magic of collaboration where everyone wins, when I bring up Brooklyn Nine-Nine, we had all the actors on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. No one stepped on each other. Everyone had their place. Everyone had their purpose. And it was about giving, not receiving. And let me tell you, it sounds like it sounds very cliche, but giving it really is better than receiving because you always look good. You always tend to be blessed and and build up the whole unit. And, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats and it always, always works. These kind of things are principles. They're kind of like laws of business that will never, ever let you down. You talk about getting along and giving back and working with other people, but you also haven't been afraid to stand out on your own and to take on areas that you feel are wrong. And I think one of the biggest examples of that has been the way that you have pushed back against sexual harassment in Hollywood, especially using your own experience as the launching point to discuss this as a topic. In your book, you take on one of the biggest power players in Hollywood by name. That doesn't often happen in this very closed uh, world of Hollywood. Were you, did you have any concerns about what that might do for your career when you so publicly called out Endeavor and Ari Emanuel? Oh yeah, I thought my career was over instantly. <laughs> I literally came home, I remember, when I tweeted that I had been sexually assaulted, um, I came home to my wife and I said, Hollywood is over. But you have to remember when you're talking about getting along and collaborating, a lot of times it means calling out bad behavior. When I was growing up in Flint, Michigan, you know, the gangs would always have a code of not snitching. That was the thing. They had phrases that would say, stop snitching. 
You know, if you were a snitch, that was the worst thing you could be. But the only purpose of that phrase was so they could get away with everything they were getting away with. And no one could call them out because you would be called out as the worst thing in the world. But what I realized is that by, you know, you, there's empathy where you say, okay, I understand you grew up this way. I understand you had these obstacles. But then there's accountability, which balances all that stuff out. And if you run a company, if you call yourself a leader, you are going to have to be held accountable. And what was so crazy is when I came up to Ari Emanuel at William Morris Endeavor, and I, I asked him, I was like, you know, are you going to hold this guy accountable? And he said, no. And I'm thinking, how are you going to run a business? How are you going to represent? You're, you work for me. And when I told him that he worked for me as my agent, he laughed. And then I realized that he didn't understand who paid his bills. He really didn't understand that, the, that everyone in Hollywood is bigger than him. And that's another thing. When, when we talk about collaboration, a lot of times for me and standing up for sexual assault, I decided to collaborate with the women of the Me Too movement who were facing so much pushback and so much stuff because they were like, they were told that this is the way to get into Hollywood and you deserved it and you were, somehow you wanted this. And I had to be honest and say, hey man, I didn't want that. And it happened to me. And by collaborating and joining with the women of that movement, it took on a whole nother life because everyone before that, they saw this as a women's issue. They were like, this is just for women. But you know what? When I came forward and other men came forward, they saw this as a 3D issue. It was a humanity issue. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more with Terry Crews. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. 
Much of Terry's success stems from his incredible work ethic. He credits it to an experience he had as he exited the NFL. I asked him to share that story with us. You know what's so crazy about being in the NFL is that you think you're independent. You think that you're a hard worker. But the thing is, is that you had people telling you when to wake up, telling you when to eat, telling you when to go to sleep. And, you know, you were basically trained in whatever they were telling you to do. And what happened is what I found out was when I retired, I was on my own and I found out that I didn't have any self-discipline. I had developed this whole attitude of entitlement. And it's so insidious. It's very sneaky because if you work somewhere and you think I'm a hard worker, I'm good, I'll do what it takes. But then when you're on your own and when you have to do the things for yourself, that's the true test. And I was lazy. I was entitled. And I was taking these loans from my friend, continued to take, I probably took about 20, 30 loans from this guy. And he was a pro football player. He's my good friend, Ken Harvey. He's still my good friend to this day. And that's what's so amazing. He stopped and said, hey, man, I asked him for one more loan. He said, dude, that's it. I can't do it anymore. And I was like, oh, okay, okay." And I felt a little guilty. You feel a little weird. But when I hung up the phone, I was angry and I was mad at him. I was like, "How? he's supposed to be my friend. How is he not giving me this money? This is crazy. And then I heard myself talking like that. And then all of a sudden it changed. And I said, why am I angry at the only person who helped me in the first place? And it hit me that I had a problem. It hit me that I had no self-discipline. It hit me that I didn't know how to really work. I just knew how to ask, but I didn't know how to work. And the next day I went to a place called Labor Ready and they gave me a broom and I swept a factory. I mean, it was that bad. Like we needed some money that bad. And what happened is at the end of the day, they give you a check for your work for the day. And I worked for $8 an hour. I got a check for 64 bucks. They took the taxes out. I got $48. I gave $20 to my wife. I put $20 in the gas tank and I had $8 in my hand. And that was $8 I didn't have the day before. And I realized something. At that moment, I said, man, I have the power to do something about my own situation. Because before I was always blaming everybody else for the for my problems, for my issues, for my thing. It was always your thing. Give me a loan. You're supposed to help me. The NFL cut me. Now what do I do? Now, then I was re- totally responsible for myself. And I was never broke again, Dan. Never. <laughs> it was watershed. It was, but it was the pain that I needed to go through. And I thank my friend Ken to this day. We talked yesterday. He is my best friend to this day. And I thank him for turning me down for that long. How did you handle the ego part of that? For so many of us, our titles and our jobs and what we have done and where we've come from, you're always thinking about what's next or preserving some level so that when people come to you, they say like, oh yeah, I know what you've done and now you're doing something even better. You went from the NFL to sweeping a factory floor. I can't imagine that the ego hit to that was an easy one for you. Look, Dan, I thought when they handed me the broom, I was going to pass out. <laughs> I literally was like, oh, I'm going to be out. I, I was like, this is it. Like, I'm going to die. And then all of a sudden I started sweeping and I went, I'm not dead. <laughs> and then I started looking around and I was like, nobody cares. And I was like, wait a minute. Everybody's worried about themselves. Nobody's even thinking about me. And it hit me, man. I was like, no one cares. 
this is all in your head. The fact that you thought the whole world would crumble if you started doing something else other than playing football, that everyone was going to talk about you and it was going to be this big front page news story. It wasn't. And then I started applying that attitude to everything, anything. So I said, well, if I went from football player to sweeping floors, I can go to football player to security guard. I can go from security guard to filing papers at the Veterans Administration. I can go from filing papers to acting because no one cared. And I learned how to take the segue as getting better. You know, there's a quote that I heard that got me through the pandemic. It said, sometimes your greatest hopes are destroyed to prepare you for something better. And that hit me so hard. I was like, those hopes being dashed, they're a pain to go through. But if you take it the right way, you can say, man, wait a minute, I can improve off this obstacle. I can use this obstacle as a footstool. And let me tell you what, and I was also in the position where I was so down low that I tried acting. You have to understand, if I had been just pretty good at something, I don't think I ever would have gave acting a chance because I would have thought, well, you know, I'm better at this. But the fact that I was down there sweeping floors and doing security, I was like, hey, my wife said, you might as well give it a try. We got nothing else. And look at this. Now, last year, I got the star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for being an actor. And I went, I was in the right place. And somehow I saw this as an opportunity instead of a degradation. And I decided to look at every time I segue into something new to just try it like that and have that attitude so that it can really be to my advantage. But I want to talk about one other attitude adjustment. You talk in the book about a feeling on the red carpet of people not paying attention to you at one point. This is midway through your career, maybe your first third of your acting career. And you start to get really mad about that. Can you talk about what you were feeling and then how you made this change? I think it's really applicable to anyone in any job. Oh man, this is good. You know, Dan, I, I remember going on the red carpet and feeling like a flea because there were big stars around me and I was intimidated. I was very intimidated by the stardom of other people. And this is another thing too, I was competing. I was like, I'm not as good as them. I I can't compare. And everything I was thinking was validated by the photographers. They were like, okay, could you please move along? You're in the way of the superstars. (laughs) And I remember like, I was telling my wife, I don't want to go on the red carpet. This is hurting me. And she was like, honey, you deserve it. You were in the project. What is the problem? And then I started to understand that I had a real issue. The problem wasn't with the paparazzi. The problem wasn't with the photographers or the project. It was with me. It was in my heart. And the problem was how I felt about myself. So I decided, Terry, take your place. Just take your place and don't shrink back. And so what I decided to do was get on the red carpet and do a jump. And it was one one thing I had to figure out because with photographers, they just want to sell photos. It, it's not a bias. It's not against you or anything, but they just want to sell a photo. So I decided to give them something to sell. So I said, I'm going to jump on the red carpet every time I'm there. And I did this over several years. And every time I did it, I ended up in the paper. And it defeated this fear of the red carpet, this fear of me feeling insignificant. I took my place And when I say that, it it was internal. It was a thing where, hey, man, you worked for this. You take it. It's yours. And a lot of times we call ourselves 
you know, playing humble. You know what I mean? Golda Meir had a, a, had a saying. She was like, don't be so humble. You're not that great. <laughs> you know, the thing is, is that you have to just go ahead and take your place. If someone says you did a great job, say thank you. I was in the attitude of, well, you know, it was all this other thing. This is like, I call it sumble, you know, so humble. And I decided to just take my place. If you did a good job, own it. And this is the balance. The balance is you are responsible for everything in your life, good and bad. So instead of just taking the bad, you have to say, I did that right. I did this correctly. I can take my place here. And this is a great way to balance out all the things that come your way in your course of your lifetime. Yeah. And I think that a big point that you make on top of that is this idea of going from a victim mentality to actually owning your experience. And you were feeling like you had made yourself feel like a victim. Everyone was out to get you. No one was paying attention to you. And that change that you're describing of mentality of saying, I'm going to own this. This is up to me to decide what, what my experience is like. And that really changed everything for you. It did. I was, I was what you call a victimologist. <laughs> I was the best victimologist ever. I mean, I had excuses for everything. You know, every person in their life at one time is a fool, a victim, or a king, king or queen, depending on who you are. And the whole point is uh, sometimes in your life, you've always been a fool because you make mistakes, you know? And then because you mess things up, you become a victim. You go, oh man, well, this did it, and this did it, and this is the reason why, and that's the reason why. And you, the table is always full of excuses. It's always full. You will never run out of excuses. And they're legitimate. They're not even, there's not wild, they're actual real excuses as to why you didn't get what you wanted. But a king or queen says, wait a minute, I am taking responsibility for everything in my circle. And the whole point is, you throw out every excuse, and if there's something you don't like, you can change it. Hey, guess what? It's your courtroom. Once I start to realize this is my courtroom, and if I don't like something in it, I can remove it. I started to take control of who I was, like all my world. And one thing I always like to say, you telling everyone what to do does not make you the boss. You doing everything you told yourself to do makes you the boss. And that's it, the context feels the same, but it's totally different. It's all a focus is in on what you are doing all the time to make sure your world stays the way you want it. And I protected my heart, protected my thoughts, protected who I was, and I started to change. And my life started to change right after that. Terry, you talk so much about personal responsibility and changing your own mindset. But there's also a role for managers and mentors to play here. What kind of advice do you give to people who are either either have someone who comes from, let's say, a similar background to yours or is trying to just help nurture someone to be on the same kind of path that you've been on? You know, uh, I just read Simon Sinek's book and I just love it. Um, and it's called Leaders Eat Last. Literally to be a leader and to be this kind of person, you have to discover what your service is. Serving is the number one thing. I, first of all, I don't have my power, my strength, everything that I have is, is like not to dominate. It's not to control. Um, the power that I have is to support and it's to protect. Anytime you see someone using it the other way, it's an abuse of power. And one thing that I discovered, and this is where the thing about collaboration comes into play, 
is that when we collaborate with each other, it's about serving each other. It's like a great salesman. You come up to a great salesman and you say you want to buy something. He'll look at your life and tell you if you need it or not. Even if it's a great sale, even if this guy could make a million bucks off you, he could tell you, wait a minute, this is the wrong thing for you. And he would be willing to turn down that sale in order to serve you. And all of a sudden, that's a guy that you trust. That's a guy that all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, he put me first above his own game. But everyone goes to that guy when they want to buy something. Hmm. That's the key because they know he's not going to sell you something you don't need. And my thing in regards to being a leader is being perfectly, beautifully honest. And when I say constructive criticism, not breaking people down, but be honest with them. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where you're like, you don't, you know, this is where you could improve here and you don't need this. Even if you could benefit off of somebody hustling on this treadmill, you have to tell them, hey, wait a minute. You know what? Take a day off. Relax. In fact, I want to make sure that you are in the right place to, so that this, you can help everybody later on. And people will respect you. People do not listen to what you say. They watch what you do. And I realized that. I noticed the difference in my family. There was a time in my family when I wanted to control everybody. And I was that taskmaster. I was a part of this thing where hey, it was my way or the highway. And you know what? I faced resistance at every step. Once I changed, and I mean, it took years, but I, I got my thing together and I decided, wait a minute, my job as a leader in this house is to serve, to really be like, to make sure my wife gets to the goals she wants to get to, to make sure my kids reach the goals they want to get to, not the goals I want. What's the goal you want? And I think that if employers or managers come up to every employee or customer, every person that comes there and finds out what it is they want, and then let, let's help us. Can we get there? I can help you get there. And look, and if it's not the right place, if we find out we don't want the same thing, then maybe it might be better if you go somewhere else. But if we are in simpatico and if we are looking for the same thing, then let's get there together. And let me tell you, right now, my family, we changed. We've changed for the better. And it's a beautiful experience. And that's the best advice I can give just with my family as an example. That's great. Well, you make it sound so easy. We know it's not. It is a work in progress. No, it's not. Like I said, it takes time. It takes <laughs> a lot of time and patience. That was Terry Cruz. To dive deeper into this conversation, check out my newsletter on LinkedIn. It's also called This Is Working, and you can find it right on my profile. Terry has channeled a very full life and some real challenges into this intentional space where he lives with integrity and accountability. Near the end of our conversation, he spoke about leading with, and I love this phrase, perfectly beautiful honesty. He believes in constructive criticism and the opportunity for growth. So I want to hear from you. How does constructive criticism work for you? What's it like to give it and to get it? Let me know online. You can tag me into the conversation on LinkedIn or anywhere else using the hashtag, this is working. I can't wait to read your thoughts. This is Working is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produced this episode with help from Stephen Valdivia, Taisha Henry, and Candace Weiner. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is head of news production. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. See you soon. <laughs>